This is Jimmy's intention. Hello, this is Jimmy's intention, and today we're going to be discussing, um, among other things, the idea of speciesism, and we have a very special guest on Jimmy's intention, the podcast, uh, Mark DeVries. DeVries? DeVries. Wonderful to be on here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. He is the director and producer of Speciesism, uh, the movie, and uh, has a very interesting take on the relationship between animals and humans that I think is going to be an interesting discussion, as well as our own philosophy professor at Crafton Hills College, Jeff Cervantes. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. And uh, we just thought we'd all get together and just talk about... uh, this whole philosophy, as well as maybe some of other Mark's future endeavors, <laughs> maybe the benefits of Disney, which is a... Uh Sounds good. So, in a, in a nutshell, Mark, I know we've been talking about it all day today. If you were to define speciesism in a sentence or two, how would you def- define it? So, an increasing number of philosophers and scientists who are criticizing our present view, widely held view of non-human animals as being significantly less important ethically than humans, argue that speciesism is a form of prejudice against members of other species, whereby we assume that their interests don't matter ethically or matter significantly less than humans. And these philosophers and scientists are arguing that when we rethink that assumption, we can't really find a justification for a sharp distinction that we generally assume to be the case or to be justifiable between humans and non-human animals in terms of their ethical importance. You know, the, the oh gosh, who said it? Might have been Marshall McLuhan. He said, like, the last creature to discover water was the fish. It's like, and, and the thought of speciesism, if it's real, to me, is an absolutely terrifying, for lack of a better word, truth to to confront because we live in a damn near 100% speciesist culture. Sure. Correct? Right. It would force us to fundamentally change how we view ourselves and the world. Right. So, Mark, my uh, knee-jerk reaction here, and I'm sure that of many people, right, and just so speaking on behalf of people out there who might have a question here is, man, of course humans matter more, right? We are more intelligent. Um, we have uh, this this, you know, rational way of thinking we have sophisticated language and communication and all this sort of thing so what how would you respond to that you know popular sort of view based upon intelligence and and rational comprehension communication skill all those sorts of things why aren't those a clear enough distinction between us and the animals so first of all the main argument that these philosophers and scientists are making is that the basic ethical principles that we hold among humans that causing harm causing suffering all else being equal is a bad thing extend to members of other species, to non-human animals, because they are capable of suffering. Mm. The evidence suggests overwhelmingly that they're capable of suffering physically and emotionally to the very same level of intensity that you and I can. And in and of itself, that's a pretty remarkable thing if we think about what it's like to receive a physical injury like breaking your arm or to suffer emotionally, heartbreak, uh, fear, anger. Um, So if non-human animals are capable of these experiences, there's something Um, immediately noteworthy about that. But these philosophers and and scientists go further and say that um, as a result of them having these capacities, these basic ethical principles that we hold among humans 
of opposition to, say, harming others and so on, extend to non-human animals because they're capable of being harmed. And so the first objection that comes up, as you describe, is that, well, humans are, are smarter. We have like a sense of um, justice, for example. Um, we, we use uh, symbolic language at least to a greater extent than non-human animals. Can we have all these capacities that seem to differentiate us? Uh, the problem these, these um, philosophers argue is that, of course, there are many humans who lack any of these capacities. Children, severely senile people, intellectually disabled people, and so forth. And so they argue that we take all of those people into account, again, because they're capable of being harmed. We're against harming an intellectually disabled person or a, a child uh, because they can be harmed. And the fact that they are not as uh, cognitively capable or as good at, say, like math or whatever it would be than the average person is not a reason to exclude their interests from ethical consideration. And so that would apply to non-human animals. They're capable of being harmed. And just like these groups of humans, um, it wouldn't seem to matter for the same reason that we don't exclude these humans. Um, it wouldn't seem to matter that these, these animals lack various capacities. Interesting. Well, you know, um, we were starting to, get, starting to get into this conversation before you talked today, Mark, and that is the whole idea of, you know, the food chain, survival of the fittest, mm -hmm. and humans have clearly come out on top. And the argument that I've heard is like, well, wait a minute, what if some other like alien species comes to Earth and they're bigger, they're stronger, they're right. smarter, would it be ethically okay for them to eat us? And I think if you're going to hold, well, look at their survival of the fittest, you know, someone's got to win, someone's got to lose idea, then you have to concede, yes, it's a per it would be perfectly justifiable for them to eat us if you subscribe to that. So from the whole, how would you ta address the food chain idea that there is a food chain and some animals eat other animals and certain animals eat insects and we eat the animals it's that eat the King insects. It's a circle of life, yeah. you know what I, I mean? Yeah, I mean, so right? that, how so do you address <laughs> that? It's just, and believe me, mm -hmm. if an elephant could, they probably would be on top. That's right. It's just, right. but they well, can't. Well, they might have more empathy than, than humans do, actually. And incidentally, speaking of, of elephants, so they might uh, be more merciful to us than we are of them. But um, in general, so there seems the other major objection after objections about intelligence is that, as you described, that there's a food chain or there's a natural order whereby humans, uh, by nature, deserve to uh, dominate other species and so on. The problem with that seems to be twofold. First, that there isn't a, a clear definition of natural to start with. It could be things that humans did before uh, more so-called civilized or sophisticated societies, before, say, like high-tech societies. It could be natural, could be things that had a direct evolutionary advantage to do, and so on. Or natural could be everything we do, because what else would we be part of if not nature? Um, the point is, whatever definition of natural we use, there are many things that fall within that definition of natural that are clearly unethical. Uh, one good example is racist prejudices. It's strongly ingrained in us. There's an evolutionary basis uh, and it has existed, as far as we can tell, for all of human society for people to have xenophobic attitudes and behaviors against outgroups. But the fact that that's natural certainly doesn't make it ethical because of the harm that it causes. That's where we're opposed to it. And on that same principle, therefore, it doesn't seem that we use nature as an, as an, ethical, um, as an ethical principle. And, well, of course, we harm non-human animals. I think the difference, though, between 
uh, I know you guys are talking about this at length today, but the difference between those two things as far as survival of the fittest is survival. Survival depends on it. If I have a racist attitude, it isn't necessarily my survival doesn't depend on it. So as a life form, as a species, to survive, there's this food chain mm -hmm. just so we can be here. So again, you know, the frog eats the flies, so the, you know, the, yeah. whatever eats frogs, I don't know. But we would concede it does go that way. Yeah. And so that's kind of the way it works. Why is it, why would that not be natural? Because isn't, don't, well, it would be natural, but it wouldn't be justifiable in the same way that we describe other things being natural, but not justifiable because of the harm that they cause. But in terms of survival specifically, so then it's not really an argument about nature, uh, the response to which I described a moment ago, but about survival. Um, the answer to that seems to be that we don't need to, for example, eat animals to survive. And more and more people are becoming vegetarian and mm -hmm. becoming vegan uh, and actually find it, um, it, it is found to be in general healthier. Uh, so people actually survive better, not So not is it animals. immoral for the frog to eat the fly? Well, in that case, uh, non-human animals, it seems, such as, for example, frogs, at least many non-human animals like frogs, are not moral agents. So they're not capable of making a distinction between, um, you know, something being ethical or, or unethical. Are any species other than humans well, capable of I, being moral agents? Before I get to okay. that, let me just state, and you can remind me of that if I forget, um, that uh, they're not, so they're not uh, moral agents. They're not capable of making that type of choice. Uh, whereas humans are capable of reflecting upon whether or not we should eat a chicken or eat, um, you know, a vegan chicken finger or whatever. Uh, so so that's a choice that we have that The ability don't. to be self-aware and reflect is what separates humans from other species, you would say? Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say that when we're making these arguments, we are appealing to moral agents. So most normal adult humans are moral agents, unlike, for example, like very young children or uh, most, if not all, non-human animals. So it's two moral agents that we're appealing and saying, unlike a frog who eats a fly, you and I can choose to go to the supermarket and buy a hamburger or a veggie burger. So we're actually pay capable of reflecting upon a principle and therefore um, are in this um, this. Um, situation of ethical responsibility. So again, are there any species other than, in your opinion, or for your research, whatever, are there any species other than the human species that are capable of being a moral agent? It depends on how you define moral agency. And of course, the research is um, continues to, to develop. So there are at least cases where it seems like animals have some preliminary sense of justice. For example, a really interesting case, uh, and this, by the way, is not, I think, relevant to the arguments about speciesism, but just interesting, uh, is that they're uh, apparently, I think it's chimpanzees, prefer grapes very much over cucumbers. And so a chimpanzee... Of course, right? Uh, oh, who, who wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so a chimpanzee watched another chimpanzee do a certain task and receive a grape for it. Mm -hmm. And then that chimpanzee did the same task and received a cucumber and uh, got angry and threw it at the experimenter, mm -hmm. seemingly because the chimp saw the other chimpanzee getting a grape. So it might be some sense of unfairness 
uh, there that was at play. For example, if they didn't observe that, they would be happy and just eat the mm -hmm. cucumber. Now, it's noteworthy, though, that I don't think this is ethically relevant if we determine that, non that uh, no non-human animals have as developed or complex of a sense of, say, justice or moral agency as humans. Mm -hmm. Because just like in the case of intelligence, it doesn't seem that among humans that is a basis for inclusion in the moral community. Because, again, just like intelligence, there are many humans, babies, intellectually disabled people, severely senile people, who are not capable of being moral agents as a result of their lacking cognitive abilities, but we're opposed to harming them, nevertheless, because they can be harmed. And so it doesn't seem that that's a prerequisite for inclusion in ethics, mm. even though the extent to which non-human animals might be moral agents is certainly an interesting question just from a scientific perspective. I'm going to follow Jimmy's point here with the bit about the natural order. And what would you say to those who say, man, this whole conversation we're having about speciesism, it seems like we're having this from a very like privileged sort of Western philosophical perspective, yeah. right? We're privileged white males, privileged therefore white. we can. Yeah, therefore, <laughs> exactly. You know, but, but this is not something that most people around the world have the luxury of talking about or deciding about, right? Their next meal is what they can hunt, right? What they can find, what they can scavenge. And that just might be, right, making a, a, a speciesist distinction, right? And so what would you say to those? Are they immoral for, for acting that way? I think it depends upon the philosophical um, position that you're applying, whether you're applying, say, a consequentialist view or a rights view or one of many other philosophical views. As a general matter, uh, say, for example, on a consequentialist view, which I would probably lean toward, um, the balance of interests is very much shifted when someone is, for example, relying for their survival on, say, killing an animal, compared with most of us here in privileged positions in rich countries in the West who are deciding between supporting an animal, who, you know, factory farming, uh, which I can describe a little bit, um, but briefly now, obviously, animals are kept in conditions where they suffer for their entire lives uh, in, in, to a degree that's it's really astonishing. Things like being on the verge of structural collapse because they're bred to grow so fast that they can't even support their own weight and they're in chronic pain and just sit on the ground and, and don't even get up anymore because mm -hmm. of the, the intensity of the pain. Remarkable amounts of suffering. So anyway, our choices between um, supporting that and say doing something like buying buying a veggie burger or a, a veggie chicken right. thing. So in that case, the balance of interests from a, a non-speciesist um, view is very strong in favor of not eating the animals. Whereas in a case of someone who is, for example, like hunting an animal for food, the balance of interests, even from a non-speciesist consideration, is going to be shifted much more in favor of the human, for example. So it's a very different circumstance from, from what is being argued uh, against here uh, and taken into consideration. It just seems like there's certain levels of this issue, though, and, and I kind of tell you where my cognitive thought process is going. There's, okay, y you've got me absolutely convinced that factory farming is horrid, okay? I've known that, but of course, we, we yeah. most of us tend just to kind of throw the blanket over a lot of issues that are, we find repulsive, because like, who wants to think about repulsive things all day? Um, but like, the, your documentary has now brought us to the light where the blanket's kind of been kick back a little bit and I'm looking at it. So yeah, absolutely concede factory farming is horrid and there's no just justice for it. In fact, I'd go to the point like when 50 years from now or 100 years from now when we look back, we're going to look back and go, what were they thinking? 
Like, what were they thinking? Okay, so you have that extreme, I mean, factory farming, and then you have absolute vegan lifestyle where, you know, you don't kill the fly that just flew in your meal. and you Jains, know. you know, Jainism is takes that point of view. Yeah, I mean, just extreme. Do you think there's morally justifiable positions in between those two extremes? Yes, I think the extreme that you describe about an opposition to all killing is not necessarily what anti-speciesism would, is not necessarily the conclusion that opposition to speciesism would lead to. Uh, most of the concern is about suffering uh, rather than killing. Okay. And therefore, the biggest concern is about how we treat animals, for example, in factory farms. And the argument for veganism is not necessarily an, uh, an, a blanket opposition to killing, which is uh, the, the, the ethics of killing are a much more complex uh, series of philosophical questions. Like who to kill and who, why, what, when, and where, and that kind of thing? You Just in terms of like to what extent death is in itself a harm or if only the suffering or the conscious experience of someone being killed is a harm, uh, whether the denial of future life is a harm, uh, things like that, which are very interesting. But the main non-speciesist case against using animals for food is that... Um, if we are taking animals into anything close to comparable consideration with humans, our commodification of them raises an inherent mm -hmm. ethical problem. Mm -hmm. If we are using them as means to our end, where we're bringing them into existence, uh, keeping them as economic commodities, and then killing them so that we can, for example, eat them rather than just eating a veggie burger because of some taste preference or taste habit, uh, that seems inconsistent in the long term. And this is the argument that, that these philosophers and animal advocates make. It seems inconsistent in the long term with um, taking their interests into anywhere near comparable consideration. To Let human me ask interests. you this. Maybe it's a... Uh, it just popped into my brain, so it's not terribly well thought out. And, of course, you think about this stuff for a living, so pardon my ignorance. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. I thought that's kind of what, what you do mostly documentaries but um, but I've done one about this don't thought about it a little human beings commodify other human beings um to some degree we do in some ways um I mean we think that human beings they could get in that coal mine and start getting right. a lot of coal it's it's dangerous we're commodifying them what about the woman on the benefit? cover of that that hot magazine you know we're commodifying, we're, we're commodifying her. her. When yeah. we talk about, when these animal advocates are talking about commodification, they're talking about like chattel commodification. So that's most analogous to chattel slavery, where someone was a piece of uh, physical property owned by someone else. That is w what they're arguing is most fundamentally inconsistent with taking someone's interest into consideration. So for example, it's really clear. Um, there are cases, for example, on the margin, or not, not even on the margin, but cases that are very serious to think about with regard to, say, like the exploitation of workers, even if they're so-called voluntary workers, because their conditions require them mm -hmm. to, say, take these positions or else, you know, not have enough to survive, things like that, which are very serious. Um, but what's really clear is we're not taking someone into anywhere near comparable consideration if we are literally keeping them, say, in chains or in a cage. Mm -hmm. but so have you chattel seen like these conditions so we, we keep these illegal immigrants who, fr oh, who yeah. pick our fruit? I mean, it's horrible. Yeah, it's and that's it's a very it's serious thing. It's yeah. in, in, in third world countries, I mean, it's right? Like Nike and Walmart subject their, their workers to these horrible working conditions, right? right? And so these, are, these are serious sure, issues absolutely. that are, are absolutely worthy of... of uh, 
discussion and, and consideration. Um, the, the point in this case, though, is that the reason it's particularly clear that there's a distinction between, it seems to be clear that there's a distinction between um, taking animals into comparable consideration with humans and um, their commodification mm -hmm. is because it's definitely not the case that you're taking someone into comparable consideration with your own interests if they are a piece of chattel, if they're literally a piece of physical property owned by you. That's why human slavery, you're, we're never going to be able to say, for example, that someone can be, that we can be opposed to racism but still in favor of slavery. That would be absurd. Mm. Because if you're holding people as slaves against their will based in either chains or whatever, yeah. right, based upon their race, um, you're not taking them into comparable consideration with, you know, the race that is owning them. That would be obvious. And that's what we're doing to non-human right. animals. So that's why that's a particularly clear case of exploitation. However, there are many other cases of exploitation among humans that are also worthy of, of consideration and that are connected sociologically and psychologically and economically with how we exploit non-human animals. There's no doubt. Yeah, I mean, this raises the, the point that we were kind of dialoguing about with after the talk. And it seems to me that racism is clearly morally wrong, right? I mean, we, we, we should never give anybody any sort of preferential treatment based upon the color of their skin, based upon their race. It's never a morally justifiable way to treat someone. Um, can we apply that same kind of logic and reasoning to species, though? I mean, it seems like this is a, an analogy that a lot of people in this sort of debate want to make, right? That speciesism is a kind of a form of racism, right? We favor one, just like favoring one race of people over another is morally reprehensible, so it is with favoring one species over another. But, I mean, it seems to me that that argument isn't as, that analogy, excuse me, isn't as strong. I mean, it seems like we can imagine morally justified circumstances and scenarios where um, making a moral distinction between species is appropriate. Matter of fact, it's the natural, well, the right with, thing with to do. Well, with the Harambe gorilla at the zoo, right. we made a speciesist decision. We made a speciesist should, decision. Should yeah. that gorilla have the right to tear that boy up? Whether the gorilla would have or not, we'll never know. Right. Uh, but that was definitely speciesist, but you could say, but it was morally justified. It was justified. morally justified. Whereas, Even well, Jane Goodall said it was morally justified. Right, right, right. Well, right. It been, that might have been a case where we could think of, for example, like there are lots of cases where there is um, a... A determination, a more difficult determination than the obvious one about factory farming. Sure. And in that case, there are more complex philosophical questions to take into account. So we'd have to say, let's say, if we killed that gorilla or if the gorilla killed the child, would uh, where would there be more suffering, a non-speciesist might say. Uh, in the same way that someone would talk about, say, uh, a person who is going to kill another person and we shoot them mm -hmm. because they're going mm -hmm. to tear another person apart or something like that. Once we are non-speciesists and we take the animal's interests into consideration, it's a, a, um, a more serious analysis that includes the non-human animals. It can still, in, depending on the circumstance, fall on the side of, say, for example, killing an animal but you are now taking the animal into consideration. Whereas in this case with Harambe, for example, uh, the animal was probably not taken into any consideration in all, at all with the, in that determination. So yeah. it's, 
You know, saw something that. similar. You're a Disney guy. What at Disney World where the alligator ate the young boy, and then we went in and what did we just we just started killing every alligator in that lagoon because right. we wanted to find the body parts. Like to me, okay, that kid to was save gone. One boy, right? Save, yeah. Well, they or no, not it even was saved, beyond being saved. I mean, right. covered the so the pill, so right, right. So this was a really tragic. Um, accident where on a on a lake uh, near uh, one of Disney's theme parks in, in Florida on on part of their uh, forty plus square miles of property, uh, an alligator killed a young boy a few few months mm-hmm. ago. Really, just horrifically tragic. Imagine being and the parent. Oh, yeah, is it, is yeah. It, it's just and and of course that goes for for any the tragic accident. The points already saw the, the alligator and actually rip the child right. Right, whether or not into the way, yeah. right, whether or not. That was the case. That either way, it would be tragic. I mean, it, it obviously, a, the death of a child is the most horrific thing you can you can imagine, um, practically. Um, so I believe the um, the the child was was uh, the child's body was recovered, um, but they they quickly um, I, I believe started. Um, killing rather than relocating many animals in the vicinity, mm-hmm. and it might it might be the case that um, it it didn't do any good, for example, to also kill all of these alligators rather than relocating them, which is what's traditionally yep. done. So that's type the type of analysis Here. where once we're taking the animals into consideration, right. we might say, well, something there's a decision that doesn't take the animal into consideration at all, and there's a decision that takes the animal into consideration, such as relocating right. rather than killing an now, animal. Now, speciesism, though, says that, look, we should take animals' considerations, right, on the level that we consider human considerations, right? Let me just give a thought ex- thought experiment here, and I want to see kind of where you end up with this thought experiment. Philosophers like to do experiments, but only in the minds. And so here, l- let's think of this one. So imagine we're in a, bu- a, a building, right, a home, let's say, and uh, tragically the home catches fire. You're, you're making a dash, you know, out the front door of the home before it starts coming down. Um, as you're running out the door, you notice, right, to your left in this room, it's a baby, right, in, in, in the room. It can't get out, helpless. But you also notice to the right, uh, there's a puppy, right? You can grab one of these two entities before the house comes down and run out the door. Which one are you going to grab, Mark? Right. So... That type of consideration right. is going to depend upon uh, various factors and depend upon the, the philosophical approach right. that you're like taking. Like what kind of puppy? Well, <laughs> well one, one determination might be, um, for example, we might have, if, if they were both going to suffer equally and there was Let's no distinction, yeah. then if you can only choose one, it would not cause additional harm to uh, choose Let's say the two, child. Two puppies. Right, you right. You can grab both of those and one baby. So right. that changes it a little bit more clearly. There's going to be more suffering done over. Or to a the box of puppies. Or a box right, of puppies. Right, okay, like you that. can either grab the box of puppies or the baby. Right. Yeah. I think there's. we have a very strong, understandably, very strong um, uh, like intuition and um, uh, sense of connection. Natural? Natural? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't going to say. Well, yeah, it but, but it is natural, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But have a very strong intuition in in this, in um, in favor of, for example, like saving a human child, mm-hmm. a human baby, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so I bet if I were trying to guess how I would behave, I'm almost certain I would be speciesist and save the child. But there's a separate question about whether 
ethically, we can justify that decision. It makes sense that in those types of extreme cases, I would understand why both, I'm sure me and practically anyone else, mm -hmm. would save the child because we have that connection and it would be just mm -hmm. so painful to think of a human child being, being you know, burned in a house mm -hmm. or, or something like that. Um, but that's a different from whether or not we can justify it. And I think I would have great difficulty justifying. I think I may, in fact, not be able to justify that decision if there was, say, much more harm to the non-human animals. However, it is important to remember that this is not the type of case we're faced with today when we talk about factory farming. The thing sure. that people who are talking about speciesism and talking about factory farming are dealing with are massive... Uh, amounts of suffering to animals who are being raised and killed and kept in, in unbearable conditions for their entire lives just because of a, a taste preference. Right. Well, I mean, <coughs> again, you, you're preaching to the choir as far as factory farming goes. And I think for you would be for most reasonable thinking people who would agree that ethically it's just wrong to do these factory farms, right. but for a variety of psychological and emotional reasons, uh, choose to do nothing about it. And I think it's people like you and the cause that's going to help bring, you know, awareness to it. And but by the way, I just want to tell anybody who's listening to, like, I'm not even arguing with Mark. When I saw your documentary, you know, we use the term cognitive dissonance. I was thrown into, like, some really, really good arguments. So I'm the kind of person that doesn't make kind of, oh, I saw a documentary. Uh, I'm an animal rights person now. Yeah, like right. I take, I weigh things out, and sometimes I take my time weighing things out, and I'm in the process of weighing all these issues out, and I have come to absolutely no conclusions at all. In fact, if I seem at all kind of devil's advocate or even combative of sorts in my questions, it's really to gain more understanding. To explore truth. Yeah, it me really too. is. Exactly, to and kind of explore the issues and, and so forth. And that is exactly what right. the purpose of, of philosophy and reasoning through questions is about. It's about you know, making the best objections and criticisms we can about an argument in order to try to determine what's true. And this is the type of argumentation and conversation that I wish people more generally had about right. ethical questions, rather than starting with your conclusion and stating, you know, stating arguments rather than working together to try to reason through an issue. Yeah. Well, this, th is, this is I it. I think, too... You know, the whole idea of, it seems like you always go back to, but factory farming. But, like, agreed. Totally agreed. So let's let's say, for example, and this is where I'm headed towards, right? It, there's, a, there's a farmer's market by uh, every Sunday mm -hmm. at a place by our house, the College of the Canyons. And they actually sell meat that is from traditional farms. They tell you the name of the cow that you're eating. You've got the cow's name. That they guarantee lives a good life, free, you know, grass-fed I have... So their interests were taken into consideration. Yes, their interests right. were taken into consideration. Were, right. and, and so I have no problem with, because the ethical interests have been considered, I have no problem eating the cow who has lived that really good life with you know, ethical considerations you know, take, being taken into account. Um, so I haven't... So I'm a speciesist, I guess, but yet I, I, I just don't like the divisive... The divisive rhetoric of ist, like wait, you're either a racist or you're not. You're either a right. a sexist or you're not. No, you know what? All of us can have a little bit of racism and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, but wh what are you an ist? And and that when I hear that you have to be a species ist, it's like well, you either are or you aren't. 
and you're either in or you're out. You're the in group or the out group. And I want to argue there's gradations of this, you know, from factory farming all the way down to not killing the fly. Yeah, well, first, the, the not killing the fly thing, I think, would be an argument that uh, m- most people, even taking the non-speciesist approach, would not necessarily be in favor of, of that. Okay. Uh, again, because of more complex issues regarding the ethics of killing. But first of all, in terms of things like, like farmer's markets, for example, it's the, the reason we talk about factory farming is because if, we, if the argument is uh, strong for taking animals into serious consideration or uh, the argument is strong that we shouldn't be speciesist or whatever, uh, once we take animals into serious consideration even at all, uh, factory farming, the way in which we raise these billions of animals uh, in ways that cause them unimaginable suffering for their entire lives becomes one of the most serious ethical issues of our time. So it makes sense. Like, for example, if we were um, talking about racism and there was a, a horrific slave trade going on, obviously that would be the empirical issue that we would be applying the arguments to, because that's where all of the suffering is. Um, so that's, uh, I would say, the most important empirical issue. However, uh, there are... So so the, the treatment of animals in, for example, like farms that are more traditional farms or that seek to be more humane, there's less suffering there, and therefore uh, it's generally argued they're a lot less bad than factory farming. So animal advocates are still split on this because there are some who take a more fundamental rights view. But at least, for example, on a consequentialist view, it's argued that this is much less bad than factory farming. And the distinction is is huge. You're like almost all the way there if you're eating from... That's what some of of these these arguments would be. You can't argue with good just because it's not perfect. Exactly, exactly. And and the distinction between if we had factory farming versus, Mm -hmm. you know, just having those types of farms, the, the difference would be huge in terms of the amount of suffering and therefore the amount of wrong and the seriousness of the issue. Now, the argument that in the long run we should move away from using fo- uh, animals for food is again about this question of commodification. Mm-hmm. That as a society, if we're raising these animals for food and we are um, using them as means to our end, where their entire existence is a means to the end of a palate preference, we're then killing them so that we can, you know, eat a beef hamburger instead of a a veggie burger, that would seem in the long term on a societal level um, in contrast or or in um, uh, contradictory uh, to taking their interests into anywhere near comparable consideration to to human interests. So that's the long-term concern about using animals for food. Uh, And I could say a few other things about that, like an interesting analogy that sort of makes that more clear. But uh, another thing just to, to point out uh, while we're talking about this, about the, the practical implications um, or the practical questions that we're facing. Um, I mentioned in my talk earlier today that uh, there was a blind taste test on Good Morning America mm-hmm. between uh, chicken um, strips that came from an actual chicken and chicken strips from a vegetarian vegan company called uh, Beyond Meat. And the Beyond Meat chicken strips... Uh, and the uh, the regular chicken strips were so similar that the the judges in a blind taste test could not tell the difference. So they were essentially identical. So what we're talking about is simply 
So buying this product versus that product. Let me jump in here on this point, though, and, and this is an important point. But again, this comes. This is only available to certain people, right? Privileged people who have enough money, right, to buy Beyond Meat, mm -hmm. which I assume is probably seven, eight dollars a pack for a couple chicken fingers, mm -hmm. whereas you can go to the drive-through, right, and get a pack for ninety-nine mm -hmm. cents. So to but me, that has to do with subsidies. There, that's about farm no, that's subsidies that's right. rather so that, than. Yeah. And this gets down to the issue of poverty, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people can't make those decisions. And so um, I think this question was raised to you in the talk today. Um, if we do away with this whole practice, right, of, of agriculture, and again, I'm, I'm not no favor, no supporter of factory farming, but it does seem to me that there is a point here where it would create more human suffering to some degree, right, um, if we did away with some of these kinds of, of farming agriculture which raises cheap meat which therefore affords people the opportunity to buy this meat at a reasonable price for their you know people who live maybe below the poverty line couldn't afford boca burgers or you know beyond meat and so it allows them to live uh you know you know healthier so yeah so how would how would you respond to this current state like how do we change the mentality of people who don't even have a choice to make them I mean, they have to buy what they can afford right well the the least expensive way to eat is more or less also the healthiest, which is to make most a of your food. Cent burger at the I mean that's a cheap. Well, think no. about it. Well, no, I said that the healthiest. Which oh, the, the healthiest. Cheapest sure. is also the but, healthiest. But, but we're which talking is, about that some people have to buy with their pocket. Right, right. So so no, the cheapest is not the ninety nine cent burger. That's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the cheapest way to eat also happens to be among the healthiest ways to eat, please much healthier explain. than the ninety nine percent burger, explain. which is that. Um, uh, I shop at whole grains, very expensive. Right. <laughs> Trader Joe's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, whole, whole things that are based on you know, whole grains and uh, uh, legumes, for right. example, uh, that people buy in bulk, like I do. I eat more of that than, for example, I, I practically never eat the Gardein chicken products, even though that's a, a good thing to to show people that they can eat, so that right. if you want to, to have the taste of that chicken and so forth. Um, but if we're talking about eating inexpensively, okay. that the the least expensive way is to is buy a bag with of these. Beans. Well, there are, but there are lots and lots of like recipes, for example, that are right. that are you know whole grain based and and bean based and and fruit and vegetable based well, and yeah. and that is yeah so that that's a healthier and the the cheapest way to to eat. Um, and incidentally, in addition to uh, the uh, the consequences to animals. One of the tragic things about the farm subsidies that's making this cheap mm. animal product uh, stuff available is the the dire health impacts that it has on people who don't know how bad it is and who want to eat inexpensively, uh, even if not as inexpensively as as um, the, the even more inexpensive well, vegan stuff. they don't have stuff. a choice to eat otherwise, right? I mean, that's what they can afford. N no, I'm arguing that things that right. are based on, on grains and right. that are based are on lentils and that are based on fruits expensive. and vegetables are, right, right, are less expensive than, say, going to McDonald's. Right. But what I'm saying is that uh, because McDonald's and, and places like that are um, – in poor communities and are relatively inexpensive, so people say, "Oh, I'll just, I'll just eat this." Uh, it that that's quite a tragic scenario as oh, well, sure. especially because people often in these poor communities are not, not uh, well educated right. about Absolutely. about what happens as a result of eating these products, and, and that's why you know rates of so what would diabetes you tell and heart people, disease are, are, are um, tragic. Well, yeah. So what would you tell these 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 families, these people who, I mean, they they're living 
busy lives. They're, they're, you know, two income families, but they're working at minimum wage jobs, right? Just trying to provide for their family, put food on the table. Mom, dad works. They don't really have time to cook a lot. You know, they, so they spend a lot of time, you know, picking up fast food. What kind of changes can they make to, to make an impact? Right. right. One of my favorite books about this subject yeah. is one called Eat Vegan on $4 a Day. Awesome. Which is a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> um, uh, hyperbolic, but, but still true that there are really uh, simple and... Um, quick and very inexpensive recipes, lots and lots of them that are very healthy, uh, that are vegan. And that, I mean, those are the kinds of things that I and most of my colleagues eat more so than these, um, you know, Gardein products or, or things like that. Even though, again, those are good for showing people that if you want to go ahead and have this taste of chicken or something at some point, mm-hmm. this this thing is available just just like chicken. So is. It's getting a little off topic, but I mean, you're you're kind of you're making an assumption here, and I don't know anything about this necessarily. That veganism is healthier, right? Mm. So, say a little bit of something about maybe the vegan diet. Is that really healthier compared to someone maybe who chooses like lean meat options? You know, like chicken and fish. Is that is it really a healthier way to to eat? So, in general, eating little or no meat uh, appears to be the healthiest in terms of things like cancer rates and heart disease and so on, uh, and diabetes and and so on. Uh, so. The, the distinction is really about how much meat uh, someone is consuming. So someone could be, for example, comparably healthy to a vegan if they eat very little meat or something like that, which is called the Mediterranean diet. So what would be little meat? How would you define little meat? Like one to two servings a week? One a week, you know? I mean, in general, it's a sliding scale. Where, right, okay. Whereas someone eats less meat, it's, it's beneficial to them okay. to do so. Um, but that, of course, is, again, from a health perspective, when you're including the impacts on the environment and the impacts on non-human animals of eating animal products, then then obviously that that's what pr- provides the argument for being vegan. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm just referring to the health issues because you, you brought yeah, that up about the McDonald's yeah. and so on. Can yeah. I ask you something? <coughs> we okay. talked about it on the way to the talk. He's like, no. Yeah, I was I about know. to say that. <laughs> yeah, Come on, that's just like standard <laughs> appropriate politeness <laughs> in conversation, okay? Um Okay, I really, you know, I believe that if everybody were to become vegan tomorrow, we all become non-speciesists, just, and it all works out very, very quickly. I believe we would have a ton of unintended consequences, negative unintended consequences. I could make the argument that we have to be speciesists because we have to incarcerate animals for their own safety. You know, so if, if we have what, we have just dogs running in the street, wild boars running around, you heard potentially hurting people you it seems like domesticated you have cows to, and chickens and, hey, you yeah. have to and i use the word incarcerate because that's what we would call that with people right. so let's call it with animals we would for better or for worse have to incarcerate them simply to live in contemporary society i think that precisely the fact that you said for their own safety mm-hmm. would be the non-speciesist argument for, for example, keeping an animal in a confined space, like putting a fence around the Mm -hmm. field rather than allowing the animal to run across the road. And when we're talking about speciesism, we're not talking about treating animals the way we treat, say, like an adult human, just like we don't treat a child the way we treat an adult human. We do things that are for the the benefit of a child that are uh, different from 
you know, a complete autonomy that we would that we would bestow upon, say, an adult human. Uh, so there are lots of situations in which, for example, fencing in an animal so that he or she doesn't cross a road or something like that would be beneficial if, if you have, say, like a rescued, adopted um, animal and you want the animal to be safe, you keep the animal in a safe space. Uh, in terms of if we all went vegan right away, I think what will really happen and what is happening is that as fewer and fewer people uh, eat animal products, eat vegetarian and eat vegan, uh, fewer and fewer animals are raised in factory farms. And mm -hmm. therefore, um, the, the number of animals raised goes down and the number of animals in these factory farms go down. It, it would not so be a situation in which they're like all just going to be free. Lead, though, to factory farming. Every argument is made. If I, and I, I totally agreed. Like oh, so what were you talking about about people going vegan? I I, I thought you were oh, saying he, he was what imagining happens. good farms, right? Or some is that what you were? The okay, so it would be the, the same with factory farming. Sort of sure. Farm. Yeah, the yeah, point like the, is the traditional farm sure. where there's no harm done to animals. Right. Okay, but then you go when you go to factory farming, you're like agreed. 100 no, no. Agreed. What I'm responding to is about your argument of what would happen to the animals if everyone went vegan, and the answer to that is as people go vegan, fewer and fewer animals are raised in these conditions, whether it's mm -hmm. factory farming or, sure. or other farms. So it's not what I'm just pointing out is that we are not expecting a case where suddenly all the animals just like magically are, are don't We'd have a place to, put to go. We'd have to them somewhere, right? I mean, right. Is, but that that is that what kind of what you're imagining? Right. And where, are gonna that's yeah, where are we going to put them? So we have to incarcerate them again for their own right. good. And, and so what I'm saying stuff, is that yeah. that's not the scenario that we would be facing. What we are facing as more people become vegetarian and vegan is fewer and fewer animals raised for food. Right. So it's not that they would just suddenly be all made free because we're not all going to go free. As be, more and more people go time, vegan, it takes place over time. Sure. Fewer are born in, in these facilities. In those, in those yeah. conditions. But so I've heard along these lines that some of these domesticated animals wouldn't even be able to survive on their own, right? They have, they're like cows and, and pigs and chickens that these, the, the contemporary species, right, is not found anywhere in nature, right? So they're, mm -hmm. they've been domesticated by human right. beings and raised for food and for other purposes and so in one sense we would be um you know putting these sort of species out of existence but not in, in right. so maybe that's a great harm right well there are two things to take into consideration there right. there's both the interests that are experienced by the animals and our interest in having a species exist so the individual cow or chicken will not care has no like subjectively experienced interest in his or her species continuing to exist. Sure. So it's not a harm to the animals. I think the question about whether we would care about domesticated animals going extinct would therefore be a question of whether we think we value the existence of these species on the earth just, just for the sake of having these species on the earth. Not for their sake now, but basically, essentially, for our sake. And if we think it is important for there to be domesticated chickens existing in the world rather than them going extinct, we can certainly have, as we already do, sanctuaries where there are domesticated chickens. But isn't that a specious point of view where you said, if we determine whether they right. should be, right? I mean, that's kind of a, a speciesist mentality where we're thinking that we know what's best for them. Well, it's not about knowing what's best for them, although we do to the extent that we know that they don't want to suffer. Sure. Um, so... In that sense, we, we do know what is uh, better or worse they also for want to them. Exist. Um, well, an individual animal could want to exist, potentially, 
or at least not want to suffer. Depends upon the extent to which the animal is a person capable of recognizing him or herself as existing as over existing, time. Sure. So some animals may not have a so-called interest in continued existence, whereas others, like almost certainly chimpanzees, are capable of uh, recognizing themselves as an entity over time. And therefore, that's why it might be worse. It is argued under some uh, views that it's worse to, say, kill a chimpanzee than to kill, say, a chicken, because there's an additional harm of them being denied an interest that they have in their own continued existence. That's that's interesting, but the, the point is, of course, we, we know that the animals, say, don't want to suffer. So that's sure. what we're, we're taking into consideration there. The point about the extinction is that they definitely don't have an interest in their species existing versus not existing because they don't have any conception of that. A chicken doesn't have any conception of like the species of Gallus domesticus having uh, existing versus going extinct. So that's why I'm saying that the discussion about the extinction of domesticated animals is a discussion about whether we value the existence of the species, not about their interests. Of course, in analyzing this, we would also take their interests into account to the extent that there are interests to take into account. For example, if we had the animals on sanctuaries, we'd want to make sure that they weren't mistreated or caused, caused to suffer or, or, for example, say used as commodities. But we might, just like we have sanctuaries for but wildlife, have sanctuaries for domesticated animals. If we wanted to, but I, I, I don't know if we would. I had a SeaWorld question. Oh, well. SeaWorld, okay. Because we said, you know, you say you can never really condone an act of racism, but you can condone an act of speciesism. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. can say... I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be persuaded about that view. That's something that the, you the, mentioned the earlier, yeah, which I can discuss. Okay, yeah. So, for example, okay, the, can we just assume the people who created SeaWorld are speciesists? The people who created SeaWorld sea are right. speciesists. I mean... You're taking to the extent that they're yeah, causing animals to suffer in those conditions and right. like building an environment where animals suffer, which seems... But then you can I also suppose. make the same argument, and I think a very strong one, that it is a place like SeaWorld that has potentially brought public awareness to certain you know, whales and dolphins and potentially has saved hundreds of thousands of whales' lives. So an act of speciesism was actually beneficial to the non-human species. If that were true, which I'm don't know of specific evidence for, but just saying hypothetically okay. if that were true, then again, on, for example, a consequentialist view, there would be a balance of interest. Well, this facility harms these animals, but benefits these other animals. So is it, on balance, more beneficial or harmful? Those are, those are considerations that a, a non-species, as a consequentialist, would make. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, you look at, what, you know, what is going to do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of Right, sentient people. individuals, right, something right. like that. And that so would be a non-species, consequentialist view, yeah. So, yeah, so again, I'm thinking, like you said, there's never really a morally justifiable time to practice racism, but you can argue there's a morally justifiable argument to practice speciesism right. in certain contexts. In certain scenarios, right. I, I, I would have to be given an example of a context where it would be justifiable. Well, I think he, he was just trying to conceive of one, the SeaWorld example. Let's right. say if, if, it brought, if, if, it, if you could make the argument, it's brought public awareness to even like the Japanese trade right. of killing whales that has been now curtailed by whatever, 50%. Just say that's true. Mm -hmm. It could be, may not be. You can make the argument, well, it's it's the species, this facility called SeaWorld that's brought that public attention that saved all those whales' lives. Well, that would be a non-speciesist argument in favor of it. That wouldn't be an argument for speciesism. On a consequentialist view, we would say this is harmful, and then there's this greater benefit that therefore it justified uh, it justifies that harm. Okay, well, so like it wouldn't be a speciesist approach view. to speciesism, though. 
right, would right. morally justify that distinction, right? Right, but it wouldn't be a speciesist approach. It would be like, a say, for example, Peter approach. Singer's approach. Sure. Right. It would be a consequentialist sure. approach. That so on that analysis, though, we could then hypothetically make a consequentialist argument to morally justify racism then, too. Is that what you're saying? It would n- – no. I'm saying this is not an argument for speciesism. It's not. It's a non-speciesist argument that is balancing a harm and a benefit to these animals. It's not justifying species. Well, we're putting these whales into captivity based upon their species. Seems like a speciesist argument. If we are doing that because... We like the way that these whales do tricks or the way that they look That would be a speciesist argument. So that's a species, right. So or that, If that's the reason or the justification, then the benefit of, for example, seeing them do tricks... Right obviously does not outweigh the harm that they suffer from doing those tricks. But it does in this other sort of way. And then that would be a non-speciesist analysis. So we're saying, let's say we're not speciesist, okay? So we think that these whales matter as much in terms of how much their interests matter as, say, human, or comparably, right? Someone would argue that keeping these animals in these conditions, if hypothetically it saved more animals than it harmed, then it is a net benefit to animals. And I don't think that's true, but just hypothetically, Mm -hmm. right? If we were just talking hypothetically, if something harmed certain animals and then had a greater benefit than the harm that it caused to, you know, any species, because we're being basically species blind, then that would be a consequentialist argument for a particular type of harm to animals. It's very similar to like trolley problems. Sure. Where you say, well, if I have a trolley that's going to hit two people, should I flip the switch and cause it to hit one person? It yeah, would be an exactly. argument for actively causing a harm, right. but being of a greater benefit. I think that would not indicate a prejudice, uh, a prejudice against the person whom you switched the trolley and killed. It would be a, an unbiased, consequentialist analysis of how to reduce the most suffering. Well, so you could say, for example... Um, well, the people that go undercover, like with MFA, you know, the people that go undercover, they actually have to kill animals while they're undercover, and they're justified by, hey, well, we're going to now expose the world, bring public awareness so to So, like, it. for example, if someone's working on a slaughter line or something right. like well, that. See, and that's, you could say, well, it's being done for non-species is good, but it's still an act of speciesism while they're doing it. Just, I, would, I would not say that, no. I would say, again, it's it's very similar to if someone, first of all, in the case of like working on a slaughter line, if you are not in that position on the slaughter line, someone else is going to be. So you're not even increasing the number of animals who are slaughtered. So it's not even like causing a Mm -hmm. harm. However, it is analogous to, let's say, someone who is uh, trying to save a large number of people um, and, you know, harms... Uh, say like, well, you know what? I, I wouldn't even say that. I think in this case, um, I, I take that back. In, in the case of with slaughter lines, you're literally interchangeable with someone else who would be on the slaughter line. So you're not even increasing suffering in order to reduce more suffering. You're being a neutral like agent on the slaughter line and, of course, documenting the abuses so that, so that it can expose it and, and kill more um, and, and um, 
prevent the uh, prevent the suffering, suffering and death sure. of, of more animals. Well, do you know, like, have you ever heard of Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar? Yes, but like, remind like me. Like the monkey's fear. And basically, if I was just to kind of just to paraphrase it in my own terms, it's just like the human being is, and I think they actually got this number based off monkeys. It's called the monkey's fear because monkeys are similar. Uh, they only have a certain amount of people that they can truly have real genuine empathy for and really love and really care for. And, you know, you have kind of your, your right. closest and then you have kind of your friends and then you have kind of people you just know. But in Dunbar's number, the number's around 150. There's about 150 people you could truly care for and then you're going to care the right, most, obviously, right. with the ones that are in the middle. So, for example, I think it's very natural for somebody, and I ask my classes this, okay, you have a choice and you've got to choose one. Someone's going to kill your mom or go to Palm Springs and kill three moms. Which one do you choose? Yeah. Oh, I would have them sure. go kill three right. moms. Um, and it just seems to me we're hardwired to be in that monkey's fear, you know. And so we're practicing, um, you know, discrimination based on our own genetics. And so we even see it at work among humans. Why would we not see it among work among species? I think there's a distinction between being more concerned about people who are socially close to you and drawing dividing lines based upon characteristics of people. So for example, it would make sense that we would consider it justifiable to care more about your friends and family than strangers. However, that would not it would not be justifiable to say, for example, care more about white people than black people or something like that. The first is about your social relation to others and the other is about defining people by characteristics and caring more or less about them based upon those characteristics. So speciesism is more analogous to that latter and is, a, is in fact an example of that latter type of behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's the distinction between those two. Did you want to explore that? So I was going to yeah, okay. switch gears here and, and, and touch on a subject that we haven't yet touched on in relation to speciesism, and that's the issue of religion. So it seems to me that uh, there's, there's a large majority of people who exist in this world, who are members of, of say, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, I'm thinking of, for example, who, and let's leave aside the factory farming issue right now and just try to, how we can make a distinction between, say, persons, human persons and, say, animals, will believe that God created human beings, right, um, in his image and endowed them with a soul and gave them certain moral capacities and relational capacities with him that's unique and somehow this makes human humans distinct from other animals right and of course i don't think that this justifies treating them in the ways that people do in factory farmings or abusing them or exploiting them but is this enough to make a distinction between humans and say other sort of creatures the, the fact that humans develop these complex things. Uh, clarify, clarify the last part of what you're saying. The, the humans can be like self-aware and self-reflective and question their existence, and write philosophical treaties. Okay. Yeah, I don't sure. Know. Okay, right, so that's, right, right, that's right. what I mean. Yeah, so yeah, the fact right. that they develop these complex things—that's that's what right, I mean. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, again, it seems like we do not use intellectual capacities as the basis for including someone in our ethical deliberations as evidenced by the fact that people who don't have those capacities you know 
Let's just babies, think our species, though. We're just thinking of our species as a whole. Our species is the only kind of species. Let's not think about individuals in the species. Well, I think just that's the species the are problem. capable of these sorts mm -hmm. of activities. In right? the main, right, with exceptions. Right. With exceptions, but but it's just this species, right, right of creatures. I think we would have to justify drawing the line around species membership. So, for example, if you think that being able to do some specific thing is morally relevant, right. we would have to explain why we should include in our ethical deliberations as a result of that members of the human species rather than only members of the human species capable of that. I think we are slipping the speciesist assumption that species membership matters into that analysis. Hmm. So, so, so you you see it as we're we're. we're I guess I'm not understanding that point about slipping the speciesist. Right. Unpack that a little bit okay. more. So, the premise is humans are capable of say, let's say like developing art right. or something like that. They're the only species capable of that. Right. Generally speaking. That's that the point we I'm know of that from we our know point of, of view. Right. right. First, the first premise of making that argument is saying that being able to develop art is ethically relevant. So that's the first premise. And before we get to the question of us being the only species that can do that, we have to ask if it is really the case that we think developing art is ethically relevant. Sure, and I, I think, think most people would say yes, absolutely. Well, I think the way in which we determine whether developing art is ethically relevant is looking at humans who cannot develop art. So when there are, again, intellectually disabled people or babies or severely senile who ca people who cannot do these things, since we don't say these people matter less, it doesn't seem that this premise that the ability to develop art is ethically relevant holds up in reflecting the ethical views that we actually hold. So th the premise, um, it is argued, is flawed there. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I, I would say that there is something morally um, worthy or of distinction when you point out this ability to create and this ability to uh, it would be a great moral loss i think to humanity to not have something like um, mozart right or beethoven right. and these individuals are incredibly significant and important and some might say um, that the works that they create make them i mean i'm not saying going to say that this point but you could say um more have more um, moral significance right because of, uh, yeah. of of what they could inspire in individuals right and other right. people and what they could create and so um so yeah I, I i guess i'm not seeing how taking humanity right as a species who is a, who is able to do philosophical thing, creative thing, yeah, architectural th thing, uh, have the capacity for s uh, these important um, activities and functions, um, how that can't in and of itself be something that distincts, dis uh, distinguishes us from other creatures. And I understand your point, though, that um, there are individuals who can't do those things. Of course there are. You know, right. Um, but that in and of itself doesn't mean that the species, the human species in and of itself isn't more valuable well, I think or the, more significant mm -hmm. because as a species, they're able to do these right. sorts of things.
Right. I guess that's the I point think, I'm trying to make. Right. right? But I think the, the flaw in that is that you have to then justify drawing the dividing line around species membership. If we think yes. that these capacities are important, right. then we could make an argument that humans are they capable... Not well, okay, I'll okay. say this. If we make that argument, we can make the argument that humans capable of uh, developing these kinds of things are of greater significance in, in some, some respects way. they are right we pay them right. more so we, we could give them well that's a little bit different because that's different from saying they're of greater ethical significance well, so yeah. whether yeah, their suffering is right. worth more and right. that's the question of speciesism sure. so first if you make the argument that the suffering that causing say you know an injury breaking beethoven's arm is in and of itself worse than breaking an average person's arm if you make that argument then that would be an argument, again, not based on species membership, but about taking individuals into different consideration based upon their capacities. But again, that does not track with species membership. So it's not an argument for speciesism, which would require a separate justification. Okay, so, but can't we say something like, and again, I'm just pushing this line of thought because I think this is really interesting here. Can we say, okay, human beings are capable of scientific advancement of knowledge, right? And it's, and it's some uh, humans are. Yeah, some humans, sure. right, are are capable of this. Our species, right, keeping a general, is capable of scientific right. advancement and knowledge. And that can benefit non-human species. That can, right, this is where right. I'm going. That can benefit, right, in a significant way. Other species, right? Mm -hmm. And I indeed, our planet and our environment as a whole, that our species alone has this capacity, right, to mm -hmm. bring about good and, yeah, harm, but also good for other species. And therefore, our species is of more value to preserve the life and, uh, and so forth. And this is just an this argument is I'm trying out here. Different, right. I think, from an argument about the ethical significance of causing someone harm. So, for example, you could say uh, a doctor with the cure for cancer, who's just like developed the cure for cancer or something, right. and you know you have to save either uh, this doctor or you know someone else from you know drowning and the, when the lifeboat sinks, right? Uh, we could say that on a consequentialist view, this doctor can do more good. Right. And therefore, it's more important to save the doctor as a result of consequences to others. Good. That is different from arguing that the doctor's interests are inherently more important. So it would be different from saying, okay, now the doctor has handed the cure for cancer to someone else. Now the doctor doesn't have any the doctor's life no longer will save these other people. Now is the doctor more important to save than this no. other person? And if, it, if the life is not, then that would indicate that the principle that you're developing and applying is about um, interests um, of others, about greater good that someone can do for others, but again, not about them mattering more themselves. So therefore, in the same way, if humans, if we imagine, could do more good than other animals in the world, it may be the reverse. We may be doing much more harm, like destroying the planet, but just, well, no, just I if agree. we imagine that. I agree we that, are, but we have the more capacity. Right, but, it, right, but if Possibly, we imagine that, sure. it would still be, if we thought, hypothetically, that humans were capable of doing more good, 
it would be a case for um, humans having external um, value to others that's greater. And intrinsic value but as well. But not intrinsic value unless you would argue, for example, that the doctor who's already now given someone the cure for cancer, so the doctor no longer is able to benefit others in that way, would still be worth more. And again, this again doesn't have to do with species because some individuals wouldn't have any ability to benefit others in that way. So it's again not drawing the line around species membership anyway. So there, those are the two flaws, I think, in that case. The first being that what you're talking about is external benefits, not in greater intrinsic value or greater value to the person suffering. And B, even if you were talking about that, that would still be different from the line being drawn around species membership as a whole. And incidentally, I, I do think that there is a case for there being greater um, potentially like uh, types of uh, million claim that some types of pleasure, for example, are of greater value than others. That we could say that sure. like, you know, drinking a beer versus like listening to Beethoven, that listening to Beethoven could be a greater value. And that connects to my, well, my arguments well, about Mill Disney that I'll, I'll make later about why the, yeah. the, the value of, yeah, the artistic value of Disney is significant. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Make that yeah, we can wrap it up sure. okay. later. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah, good. Would you like me to present? A, okay. So I'll, I'll state briefly <laughs> what I think is significant there. Um, so I, I think that in developing Disneyland, the first true theme park, this is certainly quite a quite a different no, topic. Yeah, it just seems to um, go from like the Holocaust of right. You know, this is man, like we're like species. totally switching right. gears here. This is like, great. this is, this is totally we, like, switching, pause switching it gears. And, like, start a new <laughs> tape well, here. What? Well, you could, should you do you want no, to? Do you I, want I, make it no, I'm, okay. I'm just okay. I'm just really okay. curious because yeah. I I never would have guessed your position right. on this. This is why I think yeah. it's so significant because again I think this is another case in which we. Follow an argument where where it leads that we don't uh, that we don't expect, and an assumption that we usually hold, like that, like Disney is of no like artistic significance or mm -hmm. like cultural value, could actually be be mistaken when we when we think about it more critically. So the argument is that um, in developing the first true theme park, Disneyland, um, Walt Disney and and his Imagineers. Um, invented a new genre of art, whereby instead of um, looking at a narrative from the outside, like looking at, um, say, reading a book or watching a film, you step into physically the world of the artist and are physically, visually immersed in um, the piece of art that's being created. So, for example, the, the opening scene, so to speak, of Disneyland is you step into Main Street, USA, which is a turn-of-the-century town in approximately the year 1910, where as a result of tremendous uh, uh, painstaking research, uh, everything from the, the trolley tracks to the um, lampposts is historically accurate. So, from a practical perspective, you've, you've physically stepped back in time. And this is something that was never really done before to, to that degree and is, I argue, it, literally a new genre of art, which has now been termed by the Imagineer Joe Rohde, narrative placemaking. And the, the, really, the other really groundbreaking thing about this is that in the development of Disneyland and their subsequent work, the, the Walt Disney and, and his Imagineers um, used the narrative techniques of filmmaking 
in the development of architecture, which had never been done before. So things like pacing, framing, reveals, and so on, um, are, are things that were developed for film in creating the experience of someone watching a film or a scene you turn a corner and, uh, and something is, is revealed, like in, in the case of Disneyland, you know, turning a corner on, on Town Square and seeing um, uh, Sleeping Beauty Castle at the end, that these are, are principles used in architecture uh, that, that were developed for film. And this is why the, the famous um, influential architect and architectural historian Alan Hess from Columbia University described Disneyland as, quote, the single most important piece of modern architecture and planning in the 20th century. Um, close quote. This is, is something that we really are, are overlooked, I think. And if we take art seriously and think that art is an important part of the human experience, which I argue it is, then the development of narrative placemaking, as, as originally developed uh, by, by Disney with Disneyland, um, is, is a really significant contribution to, to, our, to the arts and, and to our culture. Well, I would say <coughs> a few things. First of all, you could say, well, they've created a new art form. I would say, no, they've created a new way to monetize off art. You know, so I see them definitely, uh, I don't see them as artists. I see them as, talk about commodifying things mm -hmm. they commodify art and they're the kings of commodifying art i don't think it's for the purpose of art i think it's for the purpose of profit and you know that i'm i'm not suggesting that's bad this is yeah. america and there's such thing as profit um but i would see the the motivation as certainly more profit motivated than art motivated um, even, I would even there are two things about that uh, okay before I, uh first is that incidentally the the original disneyland uh, walt disney's vision was really um to to use Walt Disney's words, uh, Disneyland is a work of love. We didn't go into it just with the idea of making money. He was a businessman, and he, he wanted to make money, and they're a profitable company to this day, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, as you stated. Um, but the people who developed these environments are artists, scholars in art history, and uh, filmmakers, and so forth, and really cared about, and the artists who are, who are developing this work to this day really care about um, the the uh, the artistic merit of their output, uh, and and they're of course connected to a business that wants to make money by having people buy tickets and and come come to see it. And obviously, there's there's nothing uh, in and of itself self wrong with that. Mm. They they produce really excellent quality art, and they're a profitable company as a result of all of the people who, who come from around the world and enjoy it. Yeah, and I would I would also make the observation though. Okay, <clears throat> let's say for example that yes, they they have created a new art form and a, like a performance art experience of, of cultural right. storytelling, narrative placement. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say okay, and what has been the unintended consequence of that? You know, like you could say, well, that's a good thing in and of itself, but what is the price that we pay for Disneyland? Hmm. What is the downside to Disneyland? Um, and even on the corporate side, because you know. They've single-handedly changed most of the uh, like copyright laws and. Oh, I don't think that's correct. Oh no, it is correct. I mean, uh, the one thing. I mean, the oh no, go ahead. Well, okay, no, no, you. Well, go ahead. I, I'm just saying, as far as a corporate goes, they are definitely symbolic of. Cor they are corporate America. I mean, they really are. They embody the corporate mentality, the corporate, the aggressive corporate lifestyle of profit making. Um, well, I, I don't think there's anything wrong, obviously, with profit-making in and of itself. And I think Disney is actually an example of an exemplary, socially responsible company. The, the thing with regard to, um, did you say copyright? 
Yeah, they, they, I think it was what uh, like forty years, and Disney got in there, and they right. called it like the Mickey Mouse ruling or something. So yeah, the the only significant influence uh, so that they want to own their art, and and they don't want to spread their right. art; they want to own it for profit. Well, I think the Where only true artist would, I think, you know, would wouldn't have copyright. They would let the art, like uh, Tesla, you know, all his stuff is he yeah. wants it out there for the betterment of. Yeah, I think. Well, I think first of all, the one thing that. Um, Disney, I, I don't think, has had this, this influence on, on copyright that, that's claimed. I think the one thing that Disney has done with regard to copyright that's significant is been in favor of and lobbied for extending the amount of time yeah. that copyright lasts for. Right, and I think there exactly are arguments right. for and against that. I obviously take that view. Um, hmm. I think there are good arguments for that view, and there are arguments against extending the amount of time that copyright lasts for. Um, but in terms of their copywriting, their, their art. I think uh, I'll give you the example of my documentary, Speciesism, for example. So I own the copyright to Speciesism, and I, uh, in, I went, after I came out with Speciesism, I obviously put many years of work into it uh, and put all of my money into it, and um, I relied upon it uh, for a while when it first came out like for my income and to make back the costs on that. And, and it was actually very um, difficult uh, that a significant amount of people were, were stealing it as opposed to just like buying it on Amazon for $1.99. Uh, and I think similarly with Disney, this is not just this abstract monolithic entity. There are many, many talented artists whose livelihood depends upon the profitability of Disney uh, and whose whose hard work and talent has gone into developing what Disney has developed and 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 whose hearts are really um, in it in terms of that they they really are are artists who've who've uh, uh, put their talent and their lives into sure. developing this and and their livelihoods all of these people who work for Disney and who are the artists who develop this great work rely upon Disney being able to make money back off of what if what they make, or they're the rather than or they're the factory farming of American entertainment. Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, how how so? Because yeah. they do but, something that the, makes people and happy, and they and make money off of and it. And maintaining control, it seems like you know they have an ability to really control the cultural narrative, and uh, you you know it's. They have, have have had such a pervasive effect on culture. It's almost like you're a bad parent if you don't take your kid to a Disney movie. Let me movie. piggyback off well, this. And, and then I'll, I'll respond, respond to that to when you get a second. In conjunction with this, because it seems to me, I mean, I don't know nearly as much about this topic as you do, uh, having just now reflected upon it, but it, it does make me wonder, Disney is selling a certain kind of product, and basically what they're selling is a fantasy, right? An al al alternative experience to life and to reality, right? Mm -hmm. An escape from reality. The problem with that kind of mentality and that kind of a product is it breeds a certain kind of disillusionment when one comes back to reality. That all stories don't have happy endings. And you think that, look, um, life always is going to end out well. Things are going to work out in the end because, look, Disney said so or because he's in these movies. I saw this and it always happens. But that is far from reality. And so what happens is many kids or children our minds are being corrupted and, and trained and brainwashed into thinking of reality as one way when, a matter of fact, the real world is quite different than that. Mm. And so they don't know how to handle or deal with disillusionment, right? right. That life isn't a fantasy. Right. Okay. I, I yeah. would think that, for example, um, well, well, first to talk about, there are two different yeah. arguments that both that, that uh, each one of you made in turn. 
in terms of the impact that Disney has had on our culture, I think a big part of that that we, again, often um, forget uh, because we're, we um, uh, perhaps are just not familiar with the, the history of, of Disney is that uh, the main reason why Disney has had the influence on, the, on our culture that it has, I think, is directly proportional with the quality and the groundbreaking nature of their output. Mm-hmm. That... Before Disney, there were no full-length animated films. That was a, a cartoon was just something that was like, you know, like a, a silly sort of slapstick thing right. that was a few minutes. And with 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, a, a piece of animation can have a narrative arc. Right. Um, that if you look at the quality of the backgrounds uh, and of the the animation itself of the, the characters in Disney's work compared with you know others um, at the yeah. time, uh, that it was really a dramatic difference. And I, agree. I think the reason that Disney came to where it is is because of its quality. The Beautiful. same thing with the theme parks. Now, in terms of the idea of them selling a fantasy, I think that it's true that um, by all means, we should have both. Um, we should, you know, have have political discussions um, involving, you know, the the issues of our time, uh, uh, rather than, for example, like only uh, focusing our attention on art. Like, if someone spent their time listening to Beethoven all the time, as great as Beethoven is. Uh, and as powerful and optimistic and beautiful the ode to joy is, um, life is not just joy. And if you listen to Beethoven, instead of ever engaging the world, that would be bad. But it's certainly not an argument against Beethoven or against the ode to joy. And I think that uh, Disneyland, for example, is um, in particular a reflection of Walt Disney's optimism in humankind that Walt Disney really believed that people were that, that people are good. And he, he expressed that many times to his Imagineers in developing Disneyland. And he wanted Disneyland to reflect back to us the good in us and to remind us that things can get better, uh, that there is good in the world despite everything we, we see, you know, outside of us. And, and Disneyland and the in particular, the visual harmony of things like Main Street USA are meant in a deep way to reflect optimism about things being bright, about the future being, being, um, being good. And so, so these are ideals, you know, American ideals that, that Walt Disney really, really cared about and, and wanted to present to us. That was his artistic statement. There are yeah. So should on every Disney movie should there be a warning label and say, "Warning, you're buying a pack of lies." This but I is don't think it is real. a pack of lies. I think that there are you reasons. Know, just disclaimer, to be, right? Don't well, base your life on this. There's right. no link to reality. But I think there is a link to reality. Okay. I think people are chimeras. Yeah. We're good and bad, and it's it's very like in vogue yeah. to talk about things being bad and people being bad and the world getting worse. Like, as we know, there are good reasons in, in various instances to think that the world is actually getting better in terms of an overall decline in violence, sure. in terms of our, our you know, view of animals being um, uh, improving and so on. And so there's, there's the, the, um, there are works of art 
I, I often compare Disney with Norman Rockwell, for example, in terms of like reflecting Americana, back the yeah, best yeah, of us. That right. there's something to be said for optimism and hope and a positive view of humankind. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't also engage the, the problems of the world. But I think that mm. um, a, an optimism and a, a reminder, uh, Disney, um, that, uh, an Imagineer named uh, John Hench, who was instrumental in developing Disneyland, uh, referred to it as the, archi- the, the physical environment of Disneyland as the architecture of reassurance. And, and he, the idea was he, he wanted Disneyland to be something where you are reminded of the good in the world and the, the good in people. And it, um, to, to, dis- to use uh, Ray Bradbury, uh, you know, uh, the author of uh, Fahrenheit 451, who was a big, big admirer of Disney and Disneyland in general, he said, uh, well, to, to paraphrase, I don't have it exactly, but, but in, in Disneyland, Walt Disney has shown us that the, uh, r- reminded us of, of architecture as existing to um, grow us tall and to uh, delight our eyes. And, and by grow us tall, it, it means, I think, um, being about uh, re- giving us the ability to go back out and, and face the world, to say, like, there are good things. Here's a place where we're reminded of the good in us and in the world. And we can go back out there and face the real problems of the world, being reminded that this is an example, just like with a, a film, you know, with a happy ending, that there, there really is good in the world and good in people. What's interesting is that after Disneyland, uh, there a lot of Disney's parks expressions of ideas were even more explicit. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite Disney parks, Epcot, one of the four parks at Walt Disney World in Florida, has the explicit goal of trying to get us to think of ourselves as a unified world. That uh, the centerpiece is Spaceship Earth, which is um, named after Buckminster Fuller's idea that we are all passengers together aboard this Spaceship Earth. Mm-hmm. And the attractions and the physical environment of the land are meant to express what what could for some be a, a controversial idea that we should view ourselves as one humanity rather than, uh, you know, dividing our, ourselves by our borders and so forth. Um, I think Disney, Disney parks uh, can and are used to, to express to people important and meaningful ideas in addition to just being valuable works of art in and of them, themselves. Well, you know, you d- I mean, I don't think, going back kind of the whole Neil Postman thing too, where he's coming, have you read Neil Postman mm-hmm. at all? You know, that whole idea that we're just a, we're a country, you know, society on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. And I would say, okay, if you buy into Postman's argument at all, you could say, well, Disney's leading that charge. A- a- and the thing is, even Mill Postman in his book said, look, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. In fact, he talks about television being the king of it. Mm-hmm. And that he said the best thing on television is the junk, man, like, because that's all it's capable of. Or, you know, th- in other words, be- being entertained is fine. It's a great place to visit. But if you live there, it gets really dangerous. Right. And you if you live there, you Disneyland. get candidates like Donald Trump. That's right. Because we, li- we, we just want to be entertained. We just want, hey, where's the story? Right. Where's the fun? And so it, in that sense, you can argue it's dumbing us down because people aren't doing what you're doing and just – going and actually like do, watching the history of the architecture and enjoying the moment and having that escape and feeling optimistic when you leave, you have the ability to do that. But, you know, as proof of that, it's not dissuading you from really doing what's important. It's this animal holocaust, for lack of a better term. I mean, so right. you're really, 
maybe these two things do match, you know, mm-hmm. in that on the one part of your life is, is dedicated to something so serious. Another part, I don't want to say dedicated, but you're certainly extremely interested. Interested in, in this in field so of art. Yeah. But perhaps you're the exception that most people, they, they are amusing themselves to death, and we are be, being dumbed down, and Disney is leading that charge. I, I would say that it's not the case that Disney is leading the charge. And in fact, I, I don't think that Disney parks are even... I'm talking uh, about a Disney proper at whole application. Now. I'm not okay, about yeah. Parks. Okay, let's maybe say that maybe we're talking about two different things. Okay, yeah, because I'm specifically I'm talking about the Disney Empire. Okay, well, let's first talk about then um, Neil Postman's okay. arguments. I think the really important, I mean, uh, among many things, the really important thing that Postman talks about is that uh, news is being basically combined with entertainment. That as is politics, of, as is religion, right, right, as is everything. Right, but right. especially, like, for example, when we watch television news, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is a situation mm-hmm. where the most serious issues of our time that we should be, that we're going to be voting about and you know, making decisions about collectively as a society, the way in which it's we obtain this information right. is through, like, th- you know, 10-second sound bites mm-hmm. and, you know, um, things that are, are designed to be just entertaining. Like I've been interviewed on, on some of these news shows where they're like, I mean, we've talked about speciesism for like over an hour here uh, where I'm asked, uh, explain um, explain speciesism, you have like seven seconds. Yeah. Well, that's, that's absurd. Um, and so certainly I think like news media and the way in which it operates now is, is a real problem. I think that... Um, let's say, for example, like Disneyland and the Disney parks as, as the first example, are, I don't think, relevant to that. I think it would be a misapplication to apply that to things that are not, you know, entertainment masquerading as news, but are actually meant to be entertainment or actually meant to be art. I think Disney theme parks should be in the category of things like, you know, um, paintings and music and novels and even spending time let's say uh walking in a national park um certainly the the argument about um entertainment taking the place of of news is not an argument against leisure or against art that that would no, obviously so. be absurd and so i think disneyland is an example of uh, both leisure sure. and of art and and i argue like really great art which is, which is, you know, I, I argue something that, that most people um, I, I have not, you know, uh, been acquainted with, th- this argument. But anyway, uh, I think Disneyland and uh, is in the category of other things like going to a garden or going to a national park or going to a, a symphony concert. And these are all really valuable parts of the human experience and our leisure and our art and are something that people... Yeah. should do and and um it, it's very good and valuable that they exist awesome gentlemen well, i'm uh, gonna have to sign no, off i know here. I okay. well thank you yeah. very much for your time yeah. anyway good hey, to talk to you all Jeff, this is a lot of Mark, fun thank you so much a lot of fun maybe we'll do it again sometime Absolutely. Cool. okay jimmy's intention this is jimmy's intention enjoy dude <laughs>